we're in the depths of a housing and affordability emergency and people my age and younger than me are contemplating never owning their own home to, to take out the sort of housing that and housing stock that our city and our country desperately needs and convert it to the exact opposite of what we don't need, that end of the market's going to survive and do really well and flourish all over the world. It doesn't need any support from the government. That's exactly what they did, you know, for $250 million. I just, I just can't get past it as being the wrong thing. We did the wrong thing. That's right. I'm Matt Levinson, and I might have a story for you today. Ben Peake is my guest. He's an architect. He's been responsible for some, you know, really playful and creative work, like, you know, the very photogenic concrete blonde house in Annandale or the Woodcroft Neighbourhood Centre over in Blacktown. He writes about architecture. He's won a bunch of awards. But he's also kicked against the edges of the profession, including campaigning for um, the protection of the iconic building Sirius. So it might surprise you to know that he came to Architecture Late after plenty of surprising stops along the way, including a career in IT. I've followed Ben's work for years, followed his socials, read his work, admired his projects, but I've never sat down and talked. That's what this podcast is about, talking to great people, people you know and admire, their work, who they are as people, but you probably should have asked all those questions about what makes them tick and how they got to where they are now a long time ago and now it's sort of all just assumed. Well, that's what this is about. It's all about asking those questions. Ben, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Yeah, thank you, Matt. One of the things that's always a real challenge with doing this podcast is you know, I go about digging up the deep history of mm. the people I'm going to talk to. They're brilliant people. They're doing amazing things. And I start going into the, you know, internet record, going to the media record, and I find all these things that may or may not be connected. And sometimes I throw one of these things out um, at one of my guests and they are like, ah, oh, that, that actually wasn't me. That was some, some <laughs> other person with exactly the same name. And that's something that I've come up on a bunch of times mm -hmm. with you. So I'm going to start with a handful of questions that are going to be kind of like a, is this Ben or is this not Ben? Is okay. this the other Ben? A Ben trivia. A little bit of Ben <laughs> trivia to kick things off. But, but first thing, reading up on your uh, early life, you know, I found references to you growing up in north of Melbourne and out in the northwest of Sydney at, at Windsor. What's, mm. what's the real story? What was your childhood like? Yeah, so um, growing up as a child, I think I spent my time... Um, in a couple of places. So originally growing up in a little suburb called Yaguna, which is near Bankstown. And so I did a few years of primary school there, but don't have a huge amount of memories from that place, apart from you know climbing big trees and stuff in the backyard. But the other part of that was spending quite a bit of time in the inner west. So um, I went to Marrickville Public School for a year. Um, my mum worked in that area. We had family in that area. Um, and at that time, we're living in Windsor. So I think I spent most of my formative years out in Windsor, but with these little touches of spending time at school and with family in the inner west. What was it like for you as a kid? What was life like? Um, so the best things for me uh, growing up in Windsor were a connection to the bush or 
the sort of um, urban fringes of Sydney. So we were near a nature reserve, so I spent a lot of time riding my push bike, hanging out with mates, you know, climbing trees, playing creeks, making dams, those sorts of things, which you wouldn't, I think, normally associate with someone living in the city or living in Sydney. Um, so we are right on the edge of housing development in Sydney at that time. It's amazing how much that part of the world has changed since then. And and it's a really interesting – I mean, it's one of those Macquarie towns, mm. has those – you know, has that beautiful Francis Greenaway building, you know, the church in Windsor. So there's kind of a sense of architectural history to the place. But it must have been like a – it must have felt like a much more blank canvas back then. You know, I really – we learnt about all those things at school, but I had no real appreciation of it then um, – than I think I've learned since then, you know, learning about um, architecture as I've entered into that career. I look back and think, actually, I saw some really cool things just on school excursions, um, some cool things about, you know, that colonial history of Sydney and how um, we developed. I'm just going to jump into these, you know, four is it Ben questions. Mm -hmm. First one, 1996. Are you at the big day out getting your head shaved? Uh, I think my first big day out was actually 98. Yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> so there's another Ben ha- Peak. Have, have a little bit later. Yeah. Okay, second one, working in IT for a decade. Yes. Tell me about that. What drew you to that? Because that, that was a, an entire other career that came before architecture. It was, yeah. So uh, if I go back to my time in high school, which was fine, it wasn't great, um, and I think I didn't I, I didn't finish high school with any clear ambition about what I wanted to do with my life. So um, thankfully, I ended up working for my mum and my uncle for a little bit and then ended up getting a job with a mate from high school doing support for Microsoft. So because I had some interest in computing, you know, playing games and stuff as a teenager, that was a transferable skill to actually doing some techie stuff. But... Looking back, it really wasn't me. Um, And so in that role, I went from being a computer fixer to focusing on the client experience and the customer experience. And I think in that area, I really thrived. So what happened over 10 years in the end is a few quick promotions, a bit of international travel, a bit of respect and a bit of experience. But it got to a point where even though I had some small amounts of success, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in the work and that's when I started looking around for something else to do by the time that happened I was already 27 so you know life was in my mind moving quite fast at that point so I wanted to make a change as someone who was you know I studied science and worked as a scientist and then had a bit of a turnaround about that same time I totally get that Before we go on to the piece about architecture, which, you know, we're going to talk a lot about that in this conversation, what, when you reflect on that time working in tech, yep. working in IT, um, what, what did you take away from that? Are there things that you look back and think, you know, I wouldn't be as good at what I do now or I wouldn't have this particular insight if it wasn't for that time? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I started working in that job when I was 19, 19 or 20. So really the first few years were formative in um, developing a business acumen, I think. And so I worked for a few companies in that time, but my client was always Microsoft. So we're an external consultant to, you know, one of the world's leading IT companies, um, information companies. And at that point, the Australian operation really was sales and marketing. So all the people I was interacting with on a daily basis were um, leaders in sales and marketing and customer service. So just by 
servicing them, I think I learned um, on the job about how you should treat customers, how you should treat people, how you should talk to people um, and how you can provide a high level of service um, to your client but also run a profitable business. Fujitsu was, ended up being my last employer. They had this system called Sense and Respond and that was all about understanding your client's needs and trying to align our business with their vision. So there was a lot of thinking and a lot of process and Japanese way of doing business, meeting the, the Microsoft American corporate way of doing business and being an Australian in between those two strong cultures, that was a real opportunity as well, working internationally in the region. So when I look back at it, I had all these amazing experiences, but no real formal professional development, just apart from that sense and respond thing I mentioned, but just being in the right room with the right people, having a go and being given the flexibility and the opportunities to just give it a go. Like um, working with the Japanese are amazing, uh, but their processes are really, they want to define and clarify everything. Whereas the Australian teams were, let's give it a go. If it doesn't work, we'll change, we'll do something else. And so I think we're a good sort of um, middle men in between those two relationships. The other thing I should mention in that IT time is my sister. So she, um, for a long time, was a flight attendant at Qantas. And so comes from a very strong customer service background as well, but had started and sold three or four businesses during that same period. And so I was her little offsider. We'd had conversations. I'd help her with some of the IT stuff, websites, those sort of things. So I was seeing her create, develop and sell small businesses repeatedly. And I think I was getting another type of um, business experience again not formal but just from my sister getting out there and giving it her all yeah it's so important isn't it all right number two on the list mm -hmm. is this number two no number three a website devoted to david hasselhoff oh my Hoff. god how did you find that <laughs> tell me about it oh see this is the weird thing about working in it is um uh, there's a lot of spare time really uh because we could develop ideas and you know fix things really quickly and so then there was a lot of um there was a lot of weird things on the side that we would do in our spare time. And I don't know how the sort of interest in the Hoff started, but it was one of those silly things where in a very early Photoshop, you could cut out someone's face and stick it on somebody else's body. And that was hilarious. And so I just grew and grew from there. And I remember there was one where I think Chappelle Corby had just been picked up for smuggling drugs into Bali. And there was this photo of her in the cell that was published in the news websites. And I put David Hasselhoff in there as like the rescuer, you know, with the life boy and he was going to save her. And that got picked up by some media. I can't remember if it was Sydney Morning Herald or someone like that. And there was a bunch of them published online. I was like, oh my God, what have I created? Was that something you fell into by accident? Or was it, did you think it was going to have a bit of a splash? No, it was total by accident. So it was really just an inter-office joke um, that sort of grew from there. And it was at a time when I think... The internet, popularity in the internet, what really kicked off in the late 90s. So from the early 2000s, it's still relatively new for a lot of people. And so we realized as a mate, so we could just create these $2 websites, write them ourselves and send the links to people via email and then have this sort of network of people that we're able to have jokes with. So the office joke went from just being around the water cooler to being interstate, international. Um, and we had a lot of fun playing with that, yeah. We also, there was this one point where I don't know, in my life where I was drinking a lot of V, you know, that energy drink. Sure, sure. Got it. And um, we made these 
guns out of V. So we sticky taped all these V cans together and would play these office battles where we'd run around and pretend to shoot each other and throw soft like corporate toys at each other. You know, 20 year old, young 20 year old mates who went to school together just being idiots at work. And that got on a website somehow and then that got to the marketing people at V and the next thing, cases of V were being sent to our office as a sort of congratulations. So I look back at those things now and go, oh, I could I never do an energy drink. I'll do a, you know, a strong oat latte first thing in the morning, but I'm not going to touch those things anymore. It was such a weird time that time, you know, the early internet where mm. it just felt like if you were in it, it felt like anything, almost anything was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to Dan Illich in an interview for this series last year and, you know, it was amazing talking to him about how he would craft together these viral moments and he's super strategic about the way he approaches it. Mm. But from about a similar era or maybe even a little bit earlier, just making these moments where it would just cut through and just like kind of silly jokes yeah. – but with a with a bit of an intent as well, and I I hear what you're saying that um, the Chappelle Corby piece was a bit of an inter office mm-hmm. um, joke, but I know that some of the work that you've done since then has been very careful and very strategic, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But before I do it, last one in the is it Ben Peak? Mm-hmm. Did you run for office? I Senator did. Online. I did. So I think that's probably towards the end of my silliness in I you know, young kid sort of stage and the start of a transition to what I want to do with my life. You know, it flows on from being interested in the um, the power of the internet. And so there was an organisation called Senator Online and their focus was to, you know, a form of direct democracy. You know, how do you, how do you have representative government when it's impossible really to speak to everyone you know so you know tens and twenties of thousands of people are represented by one person in politics how do you sort of break that limitation of communication using technology and using the internet and so they're all about well if we can get a senator into the federal parliament um, we will use the resources available to them to create information and documents for and against every piece of legislation to go before parliament and we'll have some sort of secure online voting form where our members can say yes or no to each of those and the senator would be bound to vote that way in government, in parliament, sorry. And so I was interested in that as an idea um, and speaking with those organisers, it was the first time I think they were doing something at a federal level, so I put my name forward to be one of the candidates. I don't think there was any expectation that I would get in, but it was more just a starting the conversation about how technology or more direct forms of democracy could be used. So... Um, yeah, for, for a moment. And I, this is one where I roped my sister along and she was my number two on the ticket and we went for a federal Brisbane, uh, federal Queensland Senate seat. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's so interesting that, I mean, I guess that deliberative form of democracy was really building at that time and it's continued to build. You know, there's, you know, a lot of thinking around citizens' juries mm. and all sorts of other kinds of models. What was your experience like? Because, uh, you know, I was saying before, you've gone on to do a range of different kind of engagements mm. with government and with politics and uh, with change making of various kinds. But that was a particular kind actually going in for um, a beard at electoral politics. Mm. What, how did you find the experience? How do you reflect on it? Um, I've not actually thought about that for a long time, if I'm completely honest, but it was the start. It wasn't the start actually, because I remember being involved in politics in high school. I remember being like a young Labor member, I think. So there was always something there that I was interested in. Um, but since then, I've 
not wanted to run for office myself, but have been a good supporter, I would say, of a few independent candidates in Sydney. So Clover Moore, the Mayor, City of Sydney, and Alex Greenwich, who's the member for Sydney. Um, I actively help out in their campaigns when they come around. So, and and actively have conversations with my friends about the value of um, good representation and good independent representation. So, I think my role is more of a passive, passive role behind the scenes. You know, having dinner table conversations rather than being a, a person out the front. After having had that experience with Centre Online, you. I mean, a year later, you went on a trip to Europe, which feels like a really pivotal moment for you. Can you tell me what was what was so great about it? What was important about it? Yeah, so um, firstly, I went with some great friends to visit some great friends who were living in London. That's so always it was, the best kind, It was an amazing it? experience. Um, and I think we landed like the Easter long weekend in London, had an amazing time with them there. And then three of us went from there to Morocco and we spent a week in Morocco. So... From going from, you know, the global city of London, party city, to the old town of Marrakesh and waking up in a Riyadh and walking down through all the markets and seeing this place, Jemai Elfna, go from being a market stall selling apricots and almonds in the morning to a place of dinner and, you know, celebration of food and just the liveliness of that. And then to go from there to Paris and see another completely different city, another completely different culture, food, architecture, um, and a few other places, and ending in Istanbul. And again, you know, another one of these amazing, fascinating, very rich history cities. Um, multiple cultures have come together over the years. And at the time, thinking that I need to make a change with my life, and the, the biggest thing I wanted to change was my work, and so I think experiencing those cities, experiencing those cultures and the architecture really relit an interest in the built environment that ended up you know, me wanting to go and study architecture. When you say relit, what do you mean? Well, I reflect on that now and I remember as a child, um, and I think this is a common thing that architects do, is like redrawing the family house, you know, changing my bedroom layout all the time, um, getting my dad to draw a valley in section and then I'd have to design a bridge to go over the valley. So just sort of an interest in making stuff. Um, you know, Lego I think always comes up in these sorts of things. And But I don't know why I turned or didn't investigate it when I finished school. Um, as I said before, like school was fine but I wasn't super passionate about it and didn't really apply myself. So um, there wasn't a my next step's going to university out of school. So it took me a little while to to find that and to re-engage with education as well. You know, when I was in high school, I desperately wanted to be an architect and mm -hmm. I did my year 10 or year 11 or whatever work experience with the government architect in Canberra, oh, wow. which I actually found, you know, I'm sure there were great architects and great people down there, but I just found it the most dry kind of office experience mm -hmm. as a, you know, 16, 17 year old yeah. and, you know, ended up going off and doing some other stuff because I felt like it just wasn't a place for me. Um, was there any specific experience that made you think, no, I actually want to be designing those buildings. I want to be designing those spaces. I, I'm so interested in how that building kind of mm. came together. Tell mm. me about that. So um, coming back from that trip, I uh, this is, I guess, my, the organised side of my brain doing I made lists of the things I could potentially do. Um, an architect was just one of those things. There are a bunch of other 
ones on there. And one of them included suck it up and in, invest in the career you've already built. So there was an option to stay in IT and really step up my engagement in it and become a leader in the profession or in the industry. And then on the side, do houses, like flip houses or you know tinker with architecture and design as a consumer. Um, and just through that process of thinking about the pros and cons of every option, I realised that it, the change I was looking for was I wanted to be able to go to a dinner party and tell somebody what I did and they had an idea, rightly or wrongly, in their mind of what that was, you know. Wow. So an architect, a teacher, a fireman. I wanted something like that that was a real, um, you know, an easy way to describe what I did because I'd had 10 years of telling someone I was an IT project manager and I could just see the eyes glaze over and the interest in the conversation disappear. And so I, I was quite drawn to the idea of, you know, the one word or the very easy descriptor. And so a lot of the things I wrote down were, you know, architect, I looked at being a surveyor as well, like something, you know, out in the built environment in the in the outdoors. Um, and, yeah, I guess on balance and going through this process, I said no, architect's definitely the one I want to do. And it was because I wanted to make the, the work something I did primarily, not something I tinkered with on the side. I didn't want to say I'm going to invest in, you know, in the IT world and then in five years find out that it wasn't still not fulfilling and then have to start again. So if I was going to make a change, I wanted it to be something that I could see being the change. You went and studied. I mean, first thing, I, I love the idea that your metric was a dinner table, being yeah. able to say in one word what your job was. Yeah. And that is something that I would really love to have given my sort of weird, you know, um, day job. Um, but you went and studied at Newcastle Uni, mm. then moved quickly to UTS. Um, you ultimately won graduate of the year when you were in your final year of that degree. Um, you did a stint with Coap Architects. You appeared on the front page of the Northwest Courier yep. and you wound <laughs> up getting a grad job with Carter Williamson. It sounds like a huge year, that year of 2013, but I guess it must have come off a very long build-up. Tell me, tell me what it was like studying and then, start, and then actually starting to emerge into the world as, yeah. a, as an architect. You know, um, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly, but my transition from IT to architecture was really challenging when I look back at it. On the back of that amazing trip, I said, okay, I'm going to be an architect. Um, gee, my high school uni results weren't great, but I'll give it a go. And the first year I applied for uni, I got accepted to Canberra. And I wasn't prepared to move my life um, to Canberra. And I wanted to keep working in IT on a part-time basis to help support. And, you know, Sydney's an expensive city. Um, I wanted to be able to support myself through my studies. I didn't have any family support in that regard. And I said... I deferred that Canberra for the year um, and that was really tough. I remember being in Singapore for work and getting the UAC results um, and it was devastating because it was the first time that I can think of from a personal development point of view that I'd been told, no, you can't have it, you can't go to the next step. And I was shocked, like I was really in tears on the phone to my sister and a new partner at the time and they were saying, you'll be fine, you'll sort it out. Okay, I'll sort it out. So I said, I'll defer for a year. Um, and in the interim, I'll go to TAFE. Um, you know, the, the opportunities to go there are really great. They had a building designers course. I said, I'll see, I'll spend a year learning a little bit um, and figuring out if this is something I want to do. 
And then the next year, uh, I got accepted to Newcastle. So, okay, I'm getting closer to Sydney. Um, and, you know, the clock was ticking and I said, I'll accept that um, and I'll commute. So I ended up spending two days a week driving up, to, up, up and back to Newcastle, working three days in IT on the back of doing TAFE during the nights. So it was like a two, three-year process of hours and hours and hours of work because what I needed to do at Newcastle was do well in order to prove my ability in this new profession and get into a Sydney uni. And so that first year at Newcastle Uni, which was a great school, and I really enjoyed studying there, but I wanted to live in Sydney. It was the thing that was keeping me here. I was on the dean's list and I was easily able to transfer into second year at UTS. From there, you know, the, the rest is history, as they say. You know, that was really, I was where I wanted to study. I was staying in Sydney and I was in second year and I was doing well in this new, yeah, this new part of my life. How much do you think that early failure, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a strange thing to call it a failure, but that challenge mm. of, you know, you'd made this decision about where you wanted to be and you know, someone put up a stop sign in front of it, you couldn't do it. How much do you think that shaped or kind of drove you to the success that you've had? That was a real um, shock to me. Like if you think back that I didn't really choose the IT career, I sort of fell into it. You know, I was sort of lazily going along doing the work. To then choose to do something and being knocked back from what you wanted to do, that definitely motivated me a lot. Um, and I was committed to having a life in Sydney. So that first year, um, you know, first year university, I look back at the work and it wasn't very good really from what I know now, but that's the beauty of education and the process. Um, but I think my dedication and my interest in the subject was recognised more than any inherent skill or any inherent talent. It was really just, uh, yeah, um, a deep commitment to me and you know, my, and my other fellow students that we wanted to learn as much as we could about this. You went and, you know, working with co-op architect, architects um, and then while you did your master's, you were working with Carter Williamson as a mm. grad and you went on to continue working here. Are there any projects from that early period that really stick in your mind that stand out as really pivotal projects for you? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like... The biggest thing I look back on as a pivotal thing or a career-defining moment wouldn't be a particular project, but a series of conversations I had with people, so Will Fung and Tina Engelin at Co-op and then Sean at Carter Williamson, about what architects should be and how they should act, not so much about what architecture they should design. So... If you, if I think back to coming to it later in life, you know, mature age students are always the geeks in the room. They're interested in everything. Whereas um, a lot of my fellow students really couldn't care for a lot of the um, theory-based subjects. You know, it was 100% about design. Whereas I was really interested in a broad spectrum of the, of the teaching. And one thing I really got interested in was the architect's roles and responsibilities as a professional to the public interest. And so I think there's a link there back to my political interests, back to um, you know coming into this profession later and what does it mean to have a one-word job that people at a dinner party understand? You know, What does it mean to be a professional and what are our social, cultural, professional obligations to the broader community? And that starting those questions early 
in my architecture career, you know, later in life, but early in my architecture career, I think really has shaped my experiences and the things I've been involved in throughout my career. Shortly after that, you won the Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship mm. and you really dived into exactly these kind of questions, right? You spoke to a bunch of very significant, like really actually extraordinary people in Sydney. You went to New York and did the same with, with a cast of quite interesting people really thinking through these problems. Mm. You know, like if you laid out, you know, the title was um, looking at the role and obligations of architects and citizens in making the city for the common good. And I've been really deeply involved in some of these things from uh, quite a different perspective over the years. And I guess there's often these questions feel so technical and they Mm. feel so bogged down in kind of regulations and you know, the complexity of all the stuff that you learnt as an architecture student and the things that planning lawyers learn in their degrees and over the course of their work. And it can make it a really inscrutable thing for people who aren't part of it, even though we're sitting here looking outside of a shop front and we can see the streets around us, these decisions about urban design Mm -hmm. and about buildings affect us all in the most fundamental way. So you went off and interviewed all these amazing people, you know, the likes of Ken Ma, Philip Thales, Rob Stokes, the minister mm-hmm. who's just about to depart, um, you know, Michael Zanardo, a stack of people, really quite interesting people. It must have been the ultimate finishing school for, you know, the kind of things that you'd been thinking through in your degree and sort of setting up in some ways a kind of a primer for the career you're going to. Yeah. How, how do you reflect on that? So... Um there's a great origin story for that that research, I guess, and it started with my barber, Nathan in Happy Sailor's Barber Shop. He um, he replaced the grass out the front of his little shop in Redfern, and it died. And so he replaced it again, and it died. And then I think he did it a third time, and then council said, what are you doing using the wrong species of grass? We'll fix this. And at the same time, I'm having these conversations at uni, you know, the new planning acts coming out, all this boring legislation. And I said to my housemate, oh, what do you think of it? And his response was, isn't there someone like you taking care of it? So I had this one experience where Nathan was completely taking ownership of the built environment in even just such a small way in front of his shop, you know, making a beautiful city in three square metres. Towards the other end of the spectrum, potentially, with my housemate with no interest in it at all, can't engage with the content, and to the point where he thinks there's somebody else out there taking responsibility of it on his behalf. So these two ends of the spectrum, while I'm trying to, for university assignment, write a response to the new draft you know, planning vision for Sydney and New South Wales. And so, you know, a little bit of a whirlwind in my head going on at that time. And then the Bar Hadley opportunity came up. So I was like, well, how can I figure out this question? So the idea to speak to leaders and ask them similar questions um, was really the, the core of trying to help me figure out where my career was going to go and what agency or what involvement and what responsibility I could have going forward. You know, I've, I was probably going to see Nathan to cut my hair around yeah. the same time <laughs> down there in Redfern. Um, you were doing some of those things yourself as well, right? You had a project on Parramatta Road where you, um, you're part of a collective doing a sort of a shop front piece on, on the road there. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was, I guess, um, once I sort of latched on to this idea of uh, – public responsibility for architects. I use it across all of my work. Like I really got into it. So any subject, and I think UTS was really good at um, helping students engage with the city more broadly. You know, it wasn't just about creating beautiful objects, but it was like, how do we solve this problem and what are our opportunities in the city? So definitely the whole university was flavoured with that thinking at the time. But 
we said, well, Parramatta Road's a bit shit. There's all these empty shops. How could it be better? And so we thought, you know, planting, activation, um, separation from the busy roads could be ways to do that. And our little demonstration for one night only was like a micro example of what that could be. So we bought some plants from Bunnings and we borrowed some tables and chairs and we set up out the front of one shop front at the bus stop near that classic milk bar in Annandale. Yeah, Petersham, right near there. So people getting off the bus would be encountered by these architecture students playing Connect Four on the side of the road and we'd invite them to stop for a drink. And so although that was never going to solve Parameter Road, it was sort of a, yeah, a, a, de- a micro demonstration about how you might start to look at making it a better environment. You've been with Carter Williamson ever since that period. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good, going on a decade this year. Tell me about the projects that spring to mind when you're trying to articulate what Carter Williamson is about. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I'm involved in the hiring process for new architects and new graduates. And increasingly, people mention the Save Our Serious campaign as part of the things they recognise the practice for. So obviously that campaign was largely ran out of our office and during it, it was we had a lot of professional engagement. But afterwards or you know, since those main days of the campaign, it's become a topic at university. So students are either working on the project or studying the campaign or being mentioned the campaign. So it's sort of got this second life in TAFE and universities where it's being used as a a teaching tool for students i can see why i mean it has a lot of interesting nuance in the piece about a lot of the stuff we've talked about today and also about you know architecture and adaptive reuse and politics and governance and all these many different things how did when did that building first catch your interest catch your eye so i think i look back at the timeline and i had just been to new york for the borough hadley and had all these conversations about the professional role, you know, of architects, urban designers, politicians at this really academic level, you know, theoretical level. We used the high, I used the Highline as a built example, but it was really just um, this question of how I should act as a person. And then to come back and have a conversation with Sean on the back of the serious building in the rocks being recommended for heritage listing by the New South Wales Heritage Council – and the state government rejecting that advice. I'd just been in, in immersing myself in professionals have this responsibility, they need to act on behalf of citizens for the public interest, all this sort of stuff. And then to see a body just like that at home in the Heritage Council being ignored by the government, I was like, there's something wrong here. There's something where the work I'm thinking about with these people and what they're telling me, the way it should be, is just being is not being followed or not being used in sydney so it was really that technical thing that got me first interested had had you ever noticed it before oh absolutely yeah 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 so then i was like oh wow that's i'm i'm shocked to know that that's happening um because i'd always thought it was pretty amazing that we could have social and affordable housing um in a location like that but unlike a lot of the people who think the building shouldn't be there i thought it was a real sense of pride and something that we should be you know, doing more of, really. Driving across the bridge, I always noticed it. I think just the modular design of it and the, um, yeah, just the intriguing shape just caught my eye. And for years and years, I loved it without knowing any of the story. Mm-hmm. And then once I started to know the story about it, it 
felt so deeply emblematic of an egalitarian Sydney that yes. that that building could be in such a prime location, really the sister to the opera house, mm-hmm. um, and yet it was social housing, and it felt so deeply kind of you know it spoke to me about you know, this great city that was so kind of obsessed with real estate and yet this amazing place was right there. How does it, I mean, I guess, you know, for a long time, because I was deeply involved, um, although sort of in the the background in the campaign to save Sirius as well. And, you know, for a long time, I really, you know, struggled with this idea because I, was it better that it was saved or, you know, in the state that that it's in now or would it have been better to go? And for a long time I thought um, it was better that it was saved. And I think on the weekend I was thinking about it and I sort of swung over to the other side that I felt like in a way, um, because it is so deeply emblematic and symbolic, the symbolism has been completely inverted now that it's, you know, prestige, absolute premium housing. How, how do you feel about it in retrospect? It's hard because I spent a lot of time, energy, um, in the campaign. So we were very focused on trying to win. Um, and we had some great successes along the way, for sure. Um, and I think it was a really great moment for Sydney and the profession to stand up and have a voice and challenge what was happening. We were more than just a building. We were more about the idea of the community that had existed in that area, which was really just being destroyed and you know, moved around the city. And so towards the end of the campaign, we knew that we'd lost the bigger battle. Um, the building was being retained. So we took that as a, as a small win. Although we didn't win the war, we had this sort of battle and the idea was that Sirius would go on to somehow hold the narrative, be a vessel for the narrative of what it was and what we did to it. You know, BVN, the architects who were working on the project, great architects, the building's a robust building, architectural icon of Sirius will still exist even after it's been converted into housing for the uber wealthy. But it feels gross to me that in just 40 years or so, um, you know, within my lifetime, it's gone from being housing for low-income working people to housing for the very wealthy. And I have no issue with wealthy people, but the fact that it's just transitioned from one to the other when we're in the depths of a housing and affordability emergency and people my age and younger than me are contemplating never owning their own home, to, to take out the sort of housing that and housing stock that our city and our country desperately needs and convert it to the exact opposite of what we don't need, that end of the market's going to survive and do really well and flourish all over the world. doesn't need any support from the government. That's exactly what they did, you know, for $250 million. I just, I just can't get past it as being the wrong thing. We did the wrong thing um, there. And that's a symbol of doing the wrong thing all over the place. So, you know, the housing, housing issue is something which really dedicated our minds and effort and energy to, we could fix. Um, but we know that you know increasing homelessness, increasing homelessness in women over fifty. There are all these issues that shouldn't be happening in a place like Sydney in Australia. That is just happening because we're we're focused on all these other things. So I, I sort of get, you can see it gets very complicated for me because it's not just about the architecture of the building, but it's a symbol of how wrong it is the housing issue is at the moment and how little we're doing really to address it. You did document that 
campaign and so many of the stories about Sirius in the book that you and, and others produced about mm-hmm. a, a really beautiful book that if if people haven't seen it, it's really worth digging up because it's a it's a gorgeous book that captures um, captures that building. There is also the laurels, you know, in San Susi, another building of Tau Gophers. It's clearly not in the same sort of iconic location mm-hmm. that Sirius was, but it has so much of the kind of shape and form of Sirius and its social housing as well and deeply um, neglected. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've been riding past there a few times and, you know, the building's not in great shape. Um, so I wonder whether there's an opportunity there for us to, you know, find a way of saving some of those other buildings as well that kind of still capture some of that moment. You know, hearing you say that, I get so frustrated again because Sirius and other um, state-owned housing is in such a state of disrepair because it hasn't been correctly maintained by the landlord who's the New South Wales government on behalf of the people of New South Wales. So I feel like there's been, you know, generations of failure from the people that should be looking after these houses for whatever reason. And one of them, one of the key ones is they're not adequately funded. So the government would argue that Sirius and other houses need to be sold in order to build and maintain other houses elsewhere when really we need investment into this space. And that Sirius, they claimed, wasn't fit for purpose and it wasn't fit for purpose in their minds because of their own neglect of the building. Clearly, now that it's being modernised, it is fit for purpose. It just hasn't had the correct maintenance and you know care over the years. And to think that um, it did so well, even with that neglect, is pretty amazing testament to the architecture. But that's happening all over the city. So San Susie, as you mentioned, is the Laurels. Um, you know the houses in Waterloo, Redfern. There's what what happened in Millers Point, the rocks, is happening in all these other places in inner city areas as well. And I fear that we're making the same mistakes. Like you look at the um, Waterloo development, there's been a lot of criticisms of the government's plan there. You know, the city of Sydney's put forward alternative plans. And really, to me, the built form and the architecture is one thing. I think we've got processes in place to make sure that that's okay. But the proportion of affordable and social housing is really, I think, what needs to lift in these areas. So where we've got government-owned land, we should be investing and providing as much social and affordable housing as we possibly can rather than um, you know, more market housing, which, as I said before, will just take care of itself. Yeah, people should have the right to live in decent housing. You know, a lot of these – a lot of this, you know, social and affordable housing is – buildings that are of great architectural merit. I loved um, Michael Zanato's map of, a, mm. of social housing around the city and used that as a bit of a cycle, you know, to a guide at times. Um, but, but beyond the merit, it should just be great places for people to live. It's been so great to speak to you, Ben. I've, I've really loved this conversation. Before I wrap up, I want to ask you three super quick questions. Yep. First thing, what's keeping you up at night? Ooh, nothing at the moment, actually. Um, I'm just on the back of a very complicated project in Birchgrove, a waterfront, which finished last year. And so that kept me up a bit. And then celebrating World Pride and Mardi Gras has kept me up a bit um, recently. But now that I'm at the end of that and uh, we just finished a design competition, I'm getting plenty of rest. So, yeah. Who else should I talk to? Who's doing inspiring, creative, excellent things in, in Sydney? You know, um, my go-to person uh, for this sort of question is Jen McMaster at Trius. Um, So we sort of knew each other 
on the sidelines, but we were fortunate enough to spend time together on the Dulux study tour in 2019. And I'm really fascinated by pretty much everything that Jen has to say. Okay, that sounds really great. Um, what gives you hope? I think what gives me hope right now, um, and this is something I'm trying to get more educated about myself, is the upcoming referendum and the voice to parliament. Um, and, you know, firstly, acknowledging our First Nations people in our constitution um, as a step to, for something us to, all of us to be proud of. Um, you know, we share this place together and for thousands of generations, our First Nations people have cared for this country and cared for our environment. Um, I want to see that recognised um, and I see there's a great opportunity and something for us all to be hopeful for. That's a really great way to finish this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. Um, what's the best way to f- for people to see your work? Yeah, so um, my professional work would be on carterwilliamson.com um, and then Instagram is always the place, which is easy, at Ben Peak. Are there any... Are there any things that people can get out and actually explore? I mean, some of the places that you've designed and been responsible for are people's houses. That's Mm. a bit harder to get into. But are there there places that people can get out and actually explore? Yeah, so the two places I would mention is first, if you're not familiar with Sirius, go down and have a look, even though it's covered in hoarding at the moment. A lot of people know it from the Harbour Bridge but have never been up close. So go down to Cumberland Street. Um, And the other significant public project I did was at Woodcroft, so Woodcroft Neighbourhood Centre. Um, which is yeah a, a suburb of Blacktown, um, and was a great project to work on, given that I grew up you know, in, the, in the western suburbs as well. So that's a nice one. Cool. Get out and explore Sydney. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. This is the second of a second round of this podcast. If you haven't heard the previous interviews in the series, I really recommend you dig back in. Uh, the first one in this round was with Sasha Coles. Um, other people I've spoken to are Kayleen Milner, Dan Illich, Um, So many others, they all have incredible stories, I think really worth digging back in and having a listen if you're enjoying this. Let me know what you think. I'm Matt underscore Levinson on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on all the channels. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and I'll be back with another podcast really soon. I might have a story for you.